All right, thanks, James. Uh, good afternoon. Uh, it's good to see all of you. My name is Jesse. I'm one of the pastors here. We want to welcome you to Zoe Community Church. I guess today is Christmas Sunday. Um, yeah, so Merry Christmas to, to you all. Uh, we're going to have a Christmas Eve service, so it feels a little weird to have Christmas Sunday before we have a Christmas Eve celebration, but I think you can kind of roll with it, right? It's like this every seven years. Um, but anyway, if you could open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. We've been going through Luke 2 uh, for our Advent series. We called it Behold. I already explained last week that even though it sounds super cool, we weren't trying to be cool. It doesn't even sound that cool. Um, but the reason why we called it that is because it's one of, Behold is one of the main exhortations surrounding the birth of Christ in the Bible. For example, Luke one thirty one. The angel said, And behold, you will conceive and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Or Luke 2.10, And the angel said to them, the shepherds, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Or last week, Luke 2.34, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel. So often Christmas is just this landmark that's out in the distance. It's huge. It's a big deal to us, but we cruise by on our journey through the year. I mean, we see it coming from Thanksgiving, um, but next thing we know it, we've already passed. It's in the rearview mirror. It's the new year, and we got new things, other things to worry about. But this year, we wanted to make sure we slow down a little bit, maybe even get out of the car. So that we could really look at what Christmas is and what it means, its glory and its significance, to behold the birth of Christ. So we've been walking through Luke 2, and really the thought process here is that we would be able to look through the eyes, if you will, of these people who actually saw Jesus when he was born, after he was born, the shepherds, Mary and Joseph, the old man, Simeon. And now this week, we're going to look at someone truly special, I think. So if you haven't already, Luke 2, we're going to read verses 36 through 38. We had a long passage last week, a very short passage this week. Luke 2, verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is God's word. Will you join me in prayer? Let's pray together. Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And God, I pray for each And every person here, everyone who's watching on the live stream right now, I just pray for those who are sitting before your word this afternoon, God, that you would help us to really see what that means. Because we have so many things that are distracting us in our lives. We have so many wants and desires, things that we feel like we need. But God, you've already given us everything that we need. So God, I just pray for your help. I pray that you would give us assistance. I pray that your Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see as we've been praying throughout this series. 
And I pray, Father, that you would glorify your son in our hearts, that we would see his worth, his value, his beauty, that we would see him for who he is. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Have you ever received a gift for Christmas that was fine? You know what I mean by fine? Like it wasn't bad. Okay, you could find a use for it. But honestly, even though you said thank you and, you know, you you smiled a little bit, you forced a smile, honestly, it's not what you wanted. In fact, you have no idea why this person gave it to you. It's one of those gifts where you realize in that moment that you're not actually that close because that person doesn't know you at all. You wanted an Amazon gift card because you can buy anything on Amazon. And they said, oh, okay, and they bought you a Barnes & Noble gift card because you can buy a limited selection of books from their few stores that are left. Or maybe you asked for a Blu-ray and they gave you blue socks or something like that. It's not, again, it's not like you didn't say thank you. You're not a jerk, okay? You're appreciative. You found a use for those. Maybe you're even wearing those socks right now. But what about the things that you really wanted? Let me tell you a short story real quick. Uh, It's not Christmas-related, okay? But... It is related to what we're talking about. So try and see if you can figure it out. The story has to do with a famous pastor, a very well-known pastor. I'm not going to say his name, but you might know this story. Um, And this took place years ago when he was young and he wasn't famous. He was the pastor of this really small rural church somewhere in the East Coast. And the thing about this church is that because it was small, Everyone knew each other, okay? Every family knew the pastor. They would talk to him after service. They'd get together. And you know, I mean, we know what it's like at Zoe, too. There's a certain closeness and intimacy that you have that's not possible in a large church. In a large church, the pastor doesn't even know your name. But here, everyone felt like they could talk to him. So one day after church, a couple, parents of some kids came up to him, and they said, Pastor, we got to talk. Can you talk to our daughter? Okay, she was a teenager. They said, she's been asking us these questions, and we don't know how to answer them. Okay, so he's like, sure, you know, he knew the family, he knew the daughter. So they arranged the sit-down, and they're all sitting there, and he says, okay, so, you know, so-and-so, I heard that you have some questions for me. And the daughter gets right to the point. She says, uh, you know, I believe the gospel. Okay, I believe what you're preaching on Sunday. I think I'm a Christian. I'm pretty sure, I mean, there's nothing I disagree with. I I think I trust in this. And I think it's great that Jesus died for my sins and all. But really, what good is it if no boy will ask me out on a date? What good is it if none of the boys are even interested in me, Pastor? And there you have it. See, it would be blasphemy, or at least close to it, for a Christian to insinuate in any way that Jesus is not the greatest gift of Christmas that God could ever give. But you heard the question, and she wasn't trying to be combative. Okay, She wasn't trying to like stump the chump or anything like that. She really wanted to know. She had gone through her life. She had believed in Jesus. She had heard the gospel. But she didn't see how that actually helped her with the things that were going on right now, the things that were most pressing. I mean, I think you know how this works, right? Where you have a problem or something and you share it with someone at church or a Christian, right? A Christian brother or sister. And you say, I have this thing going on. And they just say, just pray about it. You have been praying about it. You've been asking for God to deal with it. 
and God hasn't. So you're like, I need more help than that. And they say, just pray about it. It comes across as fine. It's fine. I know their intentions aren't bad, but come on, this doesn't really seem to help with my, you fill in the blank, right? My loneliness. My prayers haven't given me a spouse or a baby It hasn't given me a job. I'm still unemployed. Or it hasn't fixed my estranged relationship with my son. Or it doesn't undo my husband's affair. It doesn't give me the money I need right now to pay for my bills. It doesn't help me with the stress of my job. And most Christians would never say this because you know that it's kind of like wrong. But what we're thinking, or what a lot of people are thinking is, it's great that Jesus died for my sins and all, don't get me wrong, but what good is that right now to help me with this thing? You see what I'm saying? Too often the harsh truth is the birth of Christ is considered the ultimate fine Christmas gift. We don't say that with our lips, of course, but that's the attitude that we bring to Christmas, when someone says Jesus is the greatest gift. Can you imagine if you're a kid here in this room and your parents don't give you anything? They give you a box and you open it up and inside is just a little piece of paper that says Jesus is the greatest gift. You would want to trade in your parents for new ones. (laughs) So today, we're going to sit down with someone who honestly didn't have much. Honestly, I preach to myself because I'm kind of like this too. But today we're going to sit down with someone who didn't have much, and yet this woman found in the birth of Jesus something that really made her heart sore in a way that is truly unique, I think. A gift that made all other gifts in her eyes forever unnecessary. So let's look through her eyes this Christmas. That's what we're going to do. Let's see Jesus, how she saw him. So we're going to look at this text in three parts. First part, what no one wants. First part, what no one wants. This is how Anna is set up for us in the pages of Scripture. You know, sometimes your life is interrupted by something good. I think everyone here has had at least one experience where you've been surprised by good news. Case in point in this story is Mary. She's just a normal girl living her life. She's about to get married when an angel appears to her and says that she is the favored one. That her son, okay, she's going to have a son for one, but her son is going to be the Messiah that's going to save his people from their sins. I mean, that is pretty nice. I mean, there there are some complications with it. Of course, she wasn't married yet, and, and there's some scandal that goes along with it. But overall, I mean, how many of us have had our lives interrupted by an angel saying that we are favored of God? Anybody? It just me? Okay, well, it's okay. I mean, I am a pastor after all. No, I'm kidding. Sometimes your life is interrupted by something good, and we've all had that. Blessings from God. But then sometimes your life is interrupted by something bad. Something terrible. Verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. Okay, so by way of context, let me just set the scene real quick. Mary and Joseph, they brought Jesus, who's just 40 days old, okay, he's just a little baby, into the temple. 
Okay, they're going to dedicate him to God, and they're going to offer a sacrifice for Mary's purification. We talked about all of this last week. Now, on the surface, they, they just seem like a normal Jewish family. No one is batting an eye. No one's stopping them for autographs, except for one person, Simeon, this old man who is full of the Holy Spirit. He sees a baby, and he recognizes salvation. And then we see here in verse 36 that there is one other person who also recognized Jesus, and that's Anna. And unlike with Simeon, we are told quite a bit about Anna. Luke actually sketches out an outline for us of what she looks like. Okay, she is a prophetess. Now, that's the female form of prophet. And female prophets in Israel were incredibly rare. Okay, there were not that many in Israel's history. According to rabbinic tradition, there were only seven that ever existed. Okay, but... They did exist. And what Luke is telling us is that she has the Holy Spirit too. Okay, that she has a relationship with God, something special. So we can trust what she says. And maybe more importantly for us, we can trust what she sees. And then she is the daughter of Phanuel. Do you see that? Of the tribe of Asher. Now, this might seem like a throwaway detail that doesn't really matter. But actually, it's quite interesting and rare that she can trace her family lineage, if you know the history. Because when the exile happened and, and the tribes of Israel were taken away to Assyria and then to Babylon, the records got messed up. Okay, basically, 10 of the tribes got lost. That's what they said. All the tribes except for Benjamin and Judah basically had their genealogies erased. So most Israelites, they had no idea how they were connected to Israel. But a few people did, and Anna is one of them. So Anna, right away, she would have stood out as kind of this legit Israelite. She has the Holy Spirit. She's a true believer. She can trace her family history. She is a Hebrew of Hebrews, you could say. So if we just stopped there, okay, if we really take our time to look in the text, if we just stopped at what Lucas told us so far, what would you think about Anna? You would think that she was really blessed, I mean, Anna is doing better than most people. She's old, too, so she's had a long life. I mean, so many of the things that we wanted are right there with us. She has this special relationship with God. She has status. She's lived a long time. But Luke, he doesn't stop there. Luke tells us that Anna, for all these things, is a widow. In fact, just seven years after she got married, her husband passed away. People got married way younger back then, okay? You know that Mary was probably 12 or 13 when the angel appeared to her. It's when you became a physical adult, a biological adult that you got married. So that was typical. So Mary, uh, Anna, like Mary, was probably like 13, 14 maybe when she got married. So that means that she was a widow when she was 20 years old. Or 21. Most of us aren't even married at that age. I've been married for about eight years. So that would mean that I would be a widower by now if I was like her. And it says here that she was a widow until she was 84. 84. Now, if you look in your Bible, there might actually be like a footnote or something here. Um, but there's a translation issue when it comes to 84. Okay, because in the Greek, it literally says something like she was a widow until 84 years. And it could either mean that she was a widow for 84 years or that she was a widow until she was 84 years. And, and different Bibles will take it either way because in Greek, it can literally go either way. Some people, I remember one commentator was like, well, it says that she was advanced in years and 84 is not that old, but 100 is old. And I was like, this guy must be in his 80s, dude. 84 is a little old. Come on, let's just be real here. 
But then other people, other people are talking about, you know, how like, you know, 105, like did anyone even live that long? We don't know exactly, but here's what we do know. She was a widow for a super long time. Most of her life was spent alone. So, I mean, you could look at it as something good, right? She's a prophetess. She lived a long life. But could you say that she had a full life being a widow? I don't think so. And if she's over 100, as she might very well be, it's most likely, it's probable that all her friends, all of her family members, her siblings, that even her children, if she had any, have already passed away. I mean, what Luke is telling us is that this woman is truly alone. Now, I want to show you something. Turn with me to Ruth chapter 1. Back in the Old Testament, it's right after Judges, before 1 Samuel. Ruth 1. I want to show you something about widowhood because I think sometimes we don't appreciate how bad it was to be a widow in those days. Ruth chapter 1. If you're not familiar with the story of Ruth, it starts with Ruth's mother-in-law. Okay, it starts with Naomi. And Naomi is this woman who is married, and she's married to her husband, and there's a famine in Israel, so they leave. Okay, they go to greener pastures. They go to a foreign country called Moab, and they try to build a life there for themselves. They have two sons, and in Moab, their sons get married, and they're living, and everything is going great. She has everything that she wants, but then disaster strikes not once, not twice, but three times. Her husband, Elimelech, dies, and then both of her sons pass away. This is how the book starts. Naomi loses that which is most precious to her, her family. And so Naomi goes back home to Israel with Ruth. And if you don't know who Ruth is, how she's related, Ruth is one of her daughters-in-law. She's a Moabite. She's not actually related to her. She's related through marriage. But she goes back with Ruth to Israel, pick up in verse 19. And the funny thing is, for Christmas you know, sake, this takes place in Bethlehem, the little town. Pick up in verse 19. Let me read. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred up because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her. He returned from the country of Moab. You could stop there. I mean, you can almost hear the acid in Naomi's voice. You can, you can feel the bitterness coming out of her soul. Mara means bitter. She says, God basically has ruined my life. That's what she tells everybody. They're like, welcome back, Naomi. Haven't seen you in a lot. She says, don't even call me that. God has wrecked me. It's God's fault. He brought calamity upon me. This isn't exactly what you picture when you think about Bethlehem at Christmas, but Merry Christmas. It's not just the loss and the loneliness, okay? That would be bad enough. But it's also this question of how are we even going to live? Because the thing is, even though it's hard to be a widow at any time uh, in human history, it was super hard back then because back then surviving widowhood was close to impossible financially. There were virtually no jobs available for older single women. None. I mean, it was so hard to just make a living for yourself. So you had to rely upon your kids. Hopefully you had them. 
Naomi doesn't have any anymore. So you basically had two options. Either get remarried ASAP, and Naomi's like, that's not going to happen. I'm too old. Or you could beg. You could beg. You know, actually in Israel, it was a little bit better because God understood the plight of widows and orphans. That's why if you read Deuteronomy, there are so many laws about caring for these people. About how you should, you know, when you're a farmer and you gather in all the grain to leave some out there so that orphans and widows could pick them up. But the thing is, even this provision was hard. It was humiliating even. I mean, if you just think about it realistically, okay, you're a wife and you're married to your husband and you're living this happy life and you're waiting for him to come home one day and he never comes home. And the next thing you know, the next day even, you're out and you're scavenging for scraps in the hot sun. I mean, it could change like that. We have to understand that widowhood was a bullet right through the heart of your hopes for a happy life. You might have had all these dreams and these thoughts. Maybe you didn't even have high expectations. You just wanted a normal life. But widowhood broke down and shattered all of those things. It was a dream killer. So back to Luke chapter 2. If we could turn there. Luke makes sure that we know that Anna was a widow. She was a prophetess, yeah. She could trace her lineage, sure, that's great. But... She was a widow. She had been given the gift that no one wanted. Now, what about you? What about you? I haven't been a pastor that long. But in the years that I've done it, and it's been maybe close to 10 years now, I've met a lot of people. And I think one thing that is constant among all people, whether it was back in California or it's here, it's older people or younger people, it's that no one really feels like their life is going the way they want it to. At least not for long. In fact, I've seen that drop off a lot where someone's like, finally, all my dreams are coming true and you can just see the cliff that they're about to go over because nothing perfect lasts forever or even for long. Almost no one is living their dream. No one's marriage is as good as it looks. No one is as carefree or confident as they come across. And what I love about the Bible is that it doesn't gloss over the reality that this is the world that you and I live in. It's the same fallen world of Anna, of Naomi, where death rings the doorbell years before you thought he'd show up, and you just got to answer the door. You have to. But what is it for you? Just think about it for one second. It's okay. You don't have to tell anybody. Just think, what is it? What do you wish that was different about your life or about this world? What do you want God to do for you? What would be the perfect gift in your eyes? Another chance, maybe? Maybe just one phone call where that person, and you know who it is, says, hey, you know, I'm sorry. Let's talk. A few more minutes with him or with her. Just one true friend. And people struggle, and it's okay to be honest as long as you stick with me and you stick with Luke. Because this leads to the second point, where some people turn. What no one wants is what Anna had, widowhood. But it doesn't have to be widowhood. It could be any bad news, any bad interruption. But second, where people turn, where some people turn. Where do people go when life doesn't go your way? Verse 36, pick up in the middle. She, Anna, was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin. 
and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. I mean, I think you know this, that some people, when life goes bad, they turn to what? They turn to religion. They turn to religion. Anna is what you would call pious. She is devout. Okay, of course she was already religious, but Luke says she never left the temple. Okay, the temple is like her second home. I mean, she's like not literally living there, but she's there every single day, every single night. And she does the things that pious people do. She fasts and she prays. You know, fasting is kind of a lost art today. I think fasting really sets apart the people that are really serious about God and all the rest of us. I mean, okay, I know some people, someone was like, what about intermittent fasting? And I was like, okay, a lot of people do that. But I said, you know, it's more of a bod thing than a God thing. Do you see what I'm saying? Just think, that's for free, okay? I came up with that, but you can use it as much as you want. But people do it for non-religious reasons. But fasting in the Bible wasn't about looking good or feeling good. It was about denying the flesh. It was about subjecting yourself to God, about making sure that you're razor focused upon him. She fasts and she prays. Now, think about this. Okay, just, just, just think about this story. Okay, Anna is praying every day. What do you think she's praying for? What do you think she's praying for? What do you think the requests are that she's bringing to God? Do you think it's possible, especially if you go back in time to when she was younger, do you think it's possible that Anna, age 21, 22, that maybe she prayed that God would give her another husband? You think maybe once or twice she prayed for that, that God would reverse her fortunes? You think maybe she knew because she's so pious, the story of Job, that even though God took away everything from him, that it was a lesson. And in the end, he blessed him with even more. Do you think she knew about that and prayed that God would give her maybe something in return? Maybe she did, maybe she didn't. Luke doesn't tell us, but I think we can ask the question. But Luke does tell us he does show us why certain people turn to religion elsewhere. And I want to show you something, something else. Turn with me to Luke 15, just a few chapters later. Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son. One of my favorite parables, one of, you know, most people's favorite parables. It's a very famous story. But here's the quick rundown. Okay, I'll give you the summary. A man has two sons, the younger of whom is a rebel. You could call him rebel scum for you Star Wars fans. He asked his father for the inheritance early, which is very insulting. When you think about it, when do you get the inheritance? When your father passes away. So basically what he's communicating in more or less words is you're living too long, man. Okay, I can't wait for you to die. Just give me the stuff now and we'll part and we'll be done with this relationship. And the father gives him the money and the son, he goes off and he wastes it all and he ends up working in a literal pigsty where he is so hungry, okay, he's so starving that he wants to eat the slop that he is feeding the pigs. And he's Jewish, okay, Jewish people don't even touch pigs. He said rock bottom. So then he thinks to himself, well, my father actually wasn't so bad, right? Even the servants in our household were treated better than this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back and I'm going to ask him, okay, I'm going to say sorry. I'm going to ask for forgiveness. I'm going to repent. And I'm going to say, just let me be a servant, please, so I could at least eat. So he goes back home, and while he's a long way off, the father sees him, and he runs to him, and he forgives him, and he welcomes him back with the best robe and the family ring and a feast in his honor. That's the famous part of the story. And if you're someone who had run from God, 
If you're someone who had been in a literal pigsty of your own, maybe a figurative, I say literal as everyone does today, not literally, but in a figurative pigsty, then you know how powerful this story is that the father would welcome the son back. But the story's not done with that. There was an older brother too. The man has two sons. Pick up in verse 25. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when the son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. Understand the situation. The younger son has been unfaithful in every way. He's basically the worst son that you could have. He treated his father with the ultimate disrespect. He wasted the share of his inheritance. He has been gone all this time. Meanwhile, the older son has been good. He's been here. He hasn't departed from the household. But notice what he says, verse 29 again. He says, look, these many years I have served you. Now, if you do a study of this in the Greek, you realize that the word he's using for serve here is actually related to the word doulos, which is not the word for servant. It's the word for slave. He says to his father, I have been slaving away for you. I've been doing things that I hate. That's how he's viewed life in his father's house, a yoke of slavery. He hated it. So why did he do it? Look at verse 29 again. He says, yet you never gave me even a young goat. Do you see what's going on here? He thought that if he did everything right, then he would get everything that he wanted, or at least something that he wanted. And this is why he turns on his father with such malice. This is why there's such acid in his voice. This is why you can feel the bitterness coming from this older brother. Because I did all these things for you. I didn't even want to do it. I didn't even want to be here. I would be that younger brother if I could. But I knew, I thought I knew that if I just did these things, then you would treat me fairly. Have you ever told yourself or told God even, I'm going to get serious about my faith this time. This year, this new year, I'm going to go to church every week. I'm going to read the Bible. I'm going to serve even. Maybe I'll memorize some scripture. Maybe I'll even fast a couple times for God and not my bod. And maybe you mentioned it or maybe you didn't. But the underlying deep down motivation for all of this was my life's not going the way that I want it to. So maybe if I get serious about God, then God will fix it all. That God will change it. I mean, I don't want to accuse you of anything. Maybe this isn't you. But I think we've all kind of done these things where we got serious about God, where we really try to humble ourselves. We really try to seek him, but not for him, but because we wanted something else. It's incredibly common in the church, this attitude, this perspective, that God uh, kind of at heart is a cosmic vending machine where he has all the things that you want, right? A1 all the way to F10 or whatever it is. And if only I could just figure out what I'm supposed to pay, what I'm supposed to give, how much fasting, how much praying, then 
God will have to give it to me because that's how he works. But that's not how he works. Health and wealth preachers, prosperity gospel people, they'll say, well, what you need is enough faith. And if you just believe harder, then God will have to give you what you want. But is that biblical? Sometimes it's not just them, but sometimes it's just the normal person at church who says that, you know, I believed in God before, but then, you know, my sister or my mom or my dad got really sick and I prayed and I fasted and I did everything right and God didn't answer the prayer. So I walked away. I said, forget God. What kind of God would respond to me in that way? Sometimes it's the well-meaning counsel that we give at church. Right? Maybe a younger single person comes up to you and asks advice and says, you know, I've been trying to get married for a while, but nothing's working out. And what do we say? We say, is there sin in your life? Is there something secretly going on? Because maybe that's it. Maybe you need to repent. And when you repent, the implication is then God will bless you with a husband or a wife. Don't get me wrong. God does call us to repent of our sins. Don't get me wrong that some, th- some, some things can damage our relationship with God in a sense. They can hinder our prayer. See 1 Peter 3. But the truth is, if we think that God works like this, that we just have to get serious and press the buttons and he'll have no choice but to dispense what we want, we're in it for a world of disappointment. Because pretty much the godliest person in the Bible one of the godliest people, Anna, who, from what we're told, did nothing wrong. All she did was worship, fast, and pray, was a widow and stayed a widow. You can't manipulate God with our piety or our devotion. So back to Luke 2. Back to Luke chapter 2. What is Anna doing? What is Anna doing? Because clearly, if she was praying for a husband, and if it worked like that, then she would have had one by now. So what has she been praying for all this time? Why does she fast? Well, what does the text actually say? It says, she did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting night and day. The verb here is actually not fasting or praying, but it's worshiping. Fasting and praying were only the means to what her life was preoccupied with. It was focusing on the glory of God, praising him. So what is Luke showing us? He's showing us a woman who's not trying to get anything from God except for God himself. Do you see that? Not a woman who got serious about God to get something else. He's showing us a woman who got serious about God because she wanted God. Some people turn to religion. Some people turn to God. And this leads to the final point, who God has given, who God has given. Not what God has given, but who. Verse 38. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. It's the same hour that Simeon ID Jesus as the Messiah. And actually in Greek, that word for hour could mean moment. So it might even be in that very moment. Simeon is handing the baby back to Mary, and Anna comes up. There are two witnesses to Christ, and she says all of this. What does she do? She, what, is it, what does it say in the text? She, she gives thanks. When someone does something for you, or when someone gives you a gift or serves you, you give thanks. Normally, when I see someone else's baby, I don't give thanks, because it's not my baby. 
right? Like what is this, unless this baby is going to grow up to like marry my daughter and be a good husband because I might really not give thanks for that guy. Unless he has something to do with me, I wouldn't give thanks for the baby. Anna gives thanks. She's not even going to live to see his life, what he will do, what he might change in her circumstances. It's all far too late for that. She's 84 or maybe she's 105. So why does she give thanks? What does she see in Jesus? Well, think about it like this, okay? 30 years from now-ish, Jesus, now an adult, is going to sit down at this well. You might know this story. And he's thirsty. The disciples have gone into town. And a Samaritan woman comes up. It's in the heat of the day. It's around noon. And they start talking. And Jesus asked her for a drink. And she gives him a drink. And then he tells her about something called living water. He says in John 4.10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him. And he would have given you living water. And she's like, well, okay, I didn't think that we were going to get into this weird discussion. She's confused. She says, what is this living? I don't even see you carrying anything. What is this living water? Is it reverse osmosis? What is it? You're saying you have water on you that satisfies forever. So the woman just says, okay, well, what is it? You know, I'm down to try it. And then Jesus brings up that he knows about her life. He says, go get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And he says, that's right. I knew it because you've had five husbands And the person you're living with now, you're not even married to. See, the woman was clearly searching for something. And she didn't find it in the first five guys. Here's the uncomfortable truth. Okay, are you ready? According to the Bible, nothing on earth will satisfy you for long. Definitely nothing forever. I mean, do you remember a couple of years ago, Anthony Bourdain committed suicide? That's like the craziest thing to me because Anthony Bourdain literally had everything that most people want. Okay, he was rich. He had an amazing job traveling the world, eating the best food with anyone he chose, any famous person. He was a family man. He was universally well-liked, which a lot of famous people aren't. He killed himself. He was so profoundly blessed in a word and yet so profoundly unhappy. You know, we harbor this beautiful delusion that if we can just get the next thing, maybe it's the next husband, whatever, then it'll be enough. But we see in people like Anthony Bourdain that what happens when you get the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and you get all of the next things until there is no more next thing is that it leads to despair. You end up right where you started. I mean, you remember the story in the beginning. What good is Jesus if no boy will ask you out on a date? What good is one date with one boy when it comes to your whole life or when it comes to the end of your life? Think about it that way. Did you hear what Jesus said? If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. What does Anna see that the woman at the well didn't see? And I think she did see it later, but at least not at first. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to who? To all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. 
The word redemption is common in Christianity. You might know a church called Redemption Church or Redeemer Church. There are a lot of them these days. Growing up, I never knew what redemption really meant. I thought it was just the same thing as salvation, just another word for it. It kind of is. Okay, I'm not saying that that's wrong, but it's more specific than that. Redemption in Greek is the word lutrosis. It has to do with release. It has to do with freedom. It's the word for when, you know, a, someone would, would go to a slave and pay the price so that they could be released from slavery, from bondage. Anna speaks to those who are waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Now, that's a weird thing to say because a lot of people were waiting for the redemption of all of Israel, right? God's people to be redeemed from Rome, right? Because they felt like they were oppressed and they were. I mean, they were under the Roman Empire. They were under Caesar's boot. But she doesn't say freedom for Israel. She says freedom for Jerusalem. It's a weird saying, and it goes back to Isaiah 52. We'll turn there, and then we'll start to wrap this up. Isaiah 52. Redemption of Jerusalem. Do you remember what Simeon was waiting for last week? He was, remember, he was waiting for the, uh, I think it's verse 25, the consolation of Israel, the comfort of his people. Isaiah 52, pick up in verse 3. Isaiah 52, 3, for thus says the Lord, you were sold for nothing and you shall be redeemed without money. Skip down to verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice together. They sing for joy. For eye to eye, they see what? They see the return of the Lord to Zion. So break forth together in singing. You waste places of Jerusalem for, and get this, for the reader of Luke 2, get this, for the Lord has comforted or consoled his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. Isaiah 52.9 is where these two ideas, Anna and Simeon's hopes, come together. Luke 2 is the fulfillment of Isaiah 52, where the Lord consoles and redeems his people. How does he do it? Not primarily by changing their circumstances, but by coming back, by returning to be with them again. The Lord shall return to Zion because you got to know the history. The temple is where God's presence was supposed to be. Isn't that crazy? Like you could actually go to the temple at Jerusalem at one point and you couldn't go all the way in, but you knew that the presence of the glory of God was actually in those wall, in those walls. That's how God condescended himself to us. You could actually know that God, you could go there. But because of Israel's sin and sin always separates, the glory of the presence of the Lord had departed. But God had said in Isaiah 52 that one day, You will sing for joy and happiness. You will be satisfied, comforted, and redeemed because I'm coming back. And what do we see in Luke chapter 2? We see Mary and Joseph bringing this 40-year-old baby to the temple. But he's not just a baby. He is born of a virgin. He is very God and very man. See, in this child, in Jesus, is the return of God himself to Zion, to Jerusalem. He is here. See, this isn't about God giving you stuff. 
Anna got that. It's about God giving himself. See, the past couple, few times, I guess, more than a couple, few times I've been up here, I prayed the same prayer that St. Augustine prayed thousands of years ago, almost 2,000 years ago. He said in his book, Confessions, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Everywhere you look, you will find a dead end. Every other cistern you drink of, you will find that it is salty water that just makes you more and more thirsty. See, God created the world and he created us and he made us for himself and our hearts were formed with a thirst that could only be quenched by him alone. But in sin, we have turned away. Our sin has separated us from the fountain of living water. We have looked elsewhere. And the Bible speaks again and again of how we run to all these different things. We have affairs with all these different idols. And none of them satisfy us because they cannot. They can't. See, a simple version of the gospel is that God is holy. We are sinners. In our sin, we deserve punishment and death. But God sent Jesus who paid the price for our sins. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross in our place and now we can be forgiven. And that is absolutely true. We need that message. Okay, we don't want to go to hell. We want to go to heaven. So we need to believe in Jesus and a sacrifice for us. But consider the story a little bit more. Behold the man upon the cross. Who is he? He's not just a human being. He is one. But he is also God in the flesh. He is the same God who created us. He is the God who is worthy of our worship, of our love, and of our life. He is the God that we have turned away from. He is the God that we have angered with our sin and rebellion. And yet, what did he do? He came to be there. He came to give of himself so that we could be forgiven, so that we could have new life, but also so that we could be freed. God suffered in the person of Jesus, humiliation, agony, temptation, even the very wrath of God so that we could be redeemed from slavery and sin, from the things that don't satisfy, from the lies that we believe that tell us that if we just go after that, we'll be happy. He died so that we could be reconciled to God again, the one who made us for himself, the one, the only one, who could satisfy our restless hearts. And we'll close here. There's a film called Amistad. It came out about 23 years ago. Maybe you saw it. It's about a group of slaves on a slave ship that managed to wrest control of the ship from their captors. And they demand that, you know, the, the captains and stuff, they take them back to their home. And of course, these guys don't do it. The slavers don't do it. They, they trick them and they take them to the east coast of America and the movie is about the trial that takes place. What should be done with these slaves? What are we going to do? And I won't spoil it for you. But there's a scene in the movie where all of the slaves are awaiting this trial. They're in a dungeon. And there's a slave named Yamba. And he starts reading this Bible. And I forget how he got it. Um, but the Bible has pictures. So he's reading it. And he's trying to figure out the story. He's trying to piece it together. And one of the other slaves, the leader, Joseph, says, why are you even reading that? You know, like, you can't even understand it. He says, no, I think I do. I think I'm starting to get it. So he starts showing him the pictures. If you've seen the movie, you know what I'm talking about. It's a very powerful scene. But he looks in the Old Testament and he sees the Jewish people and they're suffering. You know, they're slaves too. And he says, these people have suffered terribly in this world. But then he turns to this picture of a baby in a manger and he says, but something happened and this baby was born and everything changed. 
And Joseph is like, who is that baby? Like, what's so special about him? He says, I'm not totally sure, but he's amazing. He heals the sick and, and children are brought to him and all these things. But then, and he turns the page, he says he was accused of some crime. He's like, what did he do? He must have like messed up. He says, I don't think he did. Or it doesn't seem like he did, at least from the story that I'm looking at. And he definitely didn't seem to deserve what happened. And he flips the page and it's a picture of Jesus dying on the cross. And he's like, they killed him. And Joseph is like, you know, don't let it bother you, man. It's just a story. Okay. Like, and he's like, no, 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 it doesn't bother me. I'm trying to tell you the, the rest of the story. The story doesn't end there. After they buried him, it seemed like all hope was lost. But then he came back and he rose into the sky and he says, this is where the soul goes when you die. And he says, in a dungeon, it doesn't look that bad. And really, that's it, right? Isn't it? Where you can be free. Even though you're a slave, even though you're in prison, redemption is something deeper and it's something higher, something better. That it's to go where that man went, to know that you will be with him, that amazing person who will one day wipe every tear from every single eye. And look, you and I know even more than that slave. We know that we can know him now, that he's not just an amazing man, that this man was actually our God, our creator himself in the flesh. I'm not trying to discount your hardships or your suffering. This Christmas. I'm not saying that your struggles aren't real or that slavery is not a big deal. I'm just saying, I'm just saying that the gift of Christmas is not trite or sentimental or fine. If we think that the problem was with us, not with the gift, because if the story is true, and I believe it is, then to the widows, you have a better husband. And to the eunuch, you have something better than sons or daughters. And to the thirsty, come and drink from the water without price. Maybe the gift isn't that your circumstances will change, but that you have something in the circumstance. Maybe death will knock at your door. You have a life that is indestructible. Maybe you will be imprisoned by something in life. You have a freedom that nothing can take away. So will you bow your heads with me? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, you made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And so many don't find that rest. But I pray, Father, that you would help us to find it in your son. God, I know that sometimes even what I said can come across as weak and ineffective. Lord, I'm so aware of the foolishness of preaching sometimes. But God, I pray that you would speak to every heart here. I pray that you would help us to see how broken this world is, how much all the things that we seek after are dead ends unless we're seeking after you. And I pray that you would turn us heavenward. You would turn us, God, toward where you dwell. And I pray that we would long for only you. God, you have given us the greatest gift, a gift that we could never 
ever earn, a gift that we don't deserve. So God, help us to behold it this Christmas, to behold him. And I pray that you would be honored. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.